Hello, friends and enemies. Welcome to the Old Movie Lady podcast. I'm your host, the titular Old Movie Lady, but you can also call me Marg. This is episode three of my series, The Wampus Frolic. Join me as I explore the lives, careers, and public personas of a group of dreamers, of stars to be, and stars that weren't, the Wampus Baby Stars. Let me drag you back 100 years to 1923. Who's who in the Wampas? An interesting sketch of the men who keep the outside world posted about the activities of the West Coast Studios. By one of them, reads the July 7th issue of the Exhibitor's Herald. Little more than two years ago, the wild and woolly West, where gila monsters strut hand-in-hand with rattlesnakes, at least according to the ideas of the uninitiated Eastern Tenderfoot, discovered in Hollywood and Culver City a new species of human life, the genus Wampas. The Western Association of Motion Picture Advertisers, aka the Wampas, were a group of young publicity agents and advertisers in silent era Hollywood. They tasked themselves with the creation of a who's who list, a collection of 13 soon-to-be stars, all women, that they were sure would make it to the next level especially with the backing of their collegial organization. This was the second year of the Wampus Baby Stars. Before naming their 1923 selections, the Wampus held their own internal popularity contest, their annual elections. A snippet in Exhibitor's Herald, the March 3rd, 1923 edition, should tell you just how seriously they took this democratic endeavor. Poor, poor Harry! Harry D. Wilson ran for president of Wampus. So did Joseph Jackson. And what's more, J.J. won. In honor of Wilson's defeat, members of Sol Lesser's production forces decorated his desk, and here's the defeated gentleman in his office morning after. By the way, Harry was elected vice president. The photo shows Harry with a floral crown and a tombstone on his desk. You might remember him from episode one. We don't like Harry. So congratulations to Joseph Jackson. Harry was given the reins on organizing the Wampus Frolican Ball, the grand social event to introduce the baby stars to the film community. The frolic was held on Saturday, April 21st, 1923, and it was huge. 5,000 attend brilliant frolic given by Wampus, declared the exhibitor's herald. The ball was held at Warner's studio on a giant stage they had recently completed. The dominating set piece was a giant typewriter, and four separate orchestras performed. Entertainment included dancers, including a five-year-old called Tommy Wonder. All of the previous Wampus baby stars were in attendance, apparently dressed in the costumes of their most important pictures from the last year. I can see that being rather embarrassing for the ones who didn't have very much success but could find no further details. But the night, which went well into the morning, wasn't about last year's baby stars there was a brand new crop of talent to display to the world. The Wampus Baby Stars of 1923 were Eleanor Boardman, Evelyn Brent, Dorothy DeVore, Virginia Brown Fair, Betty Francisco, Pauline Guerron, Kathleen Key, Laura LaPlante, Margaret Leahy, Helen Lynch, Dearless Purdue, Jobina Ralston, and Ethel Shannon. A century has passed since these women graced the mammoth stage at Warner Brothers, an oversized typewriter looming in the background. Do you know any of their names? 
Are you curious? Let's begin. Evelyn Brent. She could have been Douglas Fairbanks's leading lady. She could have been Joseph von Sternberg's muse. She could have been Mrs. Gary Cooper. She could have been a star. But Evelyn Brent didn't particularly want to. Born in Tampa, Florida in the mid to late 1890s, Evelyn made her screen debut all the way back in 1914. For the next several years, she worked a lot. In fact, working a lot is something Evelyn never wavered on. But none of these early roles did anything to raise her profile. Many of them were shorts, and almost all of her silent films are now lost. Well, in England, a country she reportedly fell in love with, Evelyn caught the eye of one of the biggest movie stars of his time, Douglas Fairbanks. In late 1922, he signed her to a personal contract. Rumors swirled that she would star opposite him in his next picture, which was probably going to be very piratey. And it is likely this association that got Evelyn Brent on the 1923 Wampus Baby Star list. It makes sense. Fairbanks was the third most money-making star of 1923, according to the Quigley poll, and his wife, Mary Pickford, was number four. To make a film with either of them, especially with the cachet of a personal contract, could make somebody's career. Too bad Evelyn broke her contract before the film was ever made. Her official excuse at the time was that she couldn't afford to be off-screen for the length of time a Fairbanks picture would take to make. Indeed, in 1923, she only made one movie, which is a long time to not be seen by the public. As a much older lady, she revealed to interviewer John Coble that she didn't want to play a princess in a swashbuckler. Nor did she like Doug Fairbanks very much. I think she had good reason, as after she quit, Fairbanks declared that she had gotten too plump for the role anyway. Yes, dear listeners, fragile man-children have been playing that card for centuries. So I respect her for leaving that opportunity. But in the years post-Wampus List, her sheer number of roles does seem to imply that the prospect of not working was of real concern to her after all. Under contract with FBO, a peddler of gritty, low-budget fare, Evelyn made over 20 films. She became known as the Queen of the Underworld for her typecasting as tough gangster's moles. Part of this typecasting came from her studio, and part of it came from how Evelyn Brent photographed on screen. There's a frankly spectacular article in Screenland, February 1924, where they showed manipulated pictures of various stars' faces to show you how horrible they look if made to be perfectly symmetrical. You know, for science. It also spends a great deal of time explaining actors' best and worst angles. Anyway, in the piece, they say, Evelyn Brent does not avoid full-face photographs, but she should. The right side of her face is more full than the left, and her full face has a heaviness about it that is lacking in her profile or semi-profile. I wouldn't use the word heaviness in the context of any photographs of Evelyn Brent, but her photos are spectacular examples of how angle, lighting, makeup, lens, length, I'm sure among other things, can create wildly different images. 
Some shots of her do look like completely different people. And one of those people looked like the perfect lady criminal to 1920s audiences. Now, you might assume Evelyn Brent was trying to break free of typecasting and move on to more prestigious pictures. And if so, it would make sense to learn your angles. This is a technique perfected by some of the greatest Hollywood stars. Some took it to extremes, refusing to be filmed on their bad side, or becoming lighting experts themselves to ensure that they always looked amazing on screen. Evelyn didn't do any of that. She cared about her performances. Her reviews were good. She liked acting. But she didn't really care about looking any particular way while she did it. Or if she did care, she didn't know how to fix the problem. The power of how she was being filmed is demonstrated in some of her most important pictures. After she moved to Paramount, they put her in Underworld, 1927, directed by Joseph von Sternberg. This was swiftly followed the next year by two more by the same director, The Last Command and The Dragnet. Yes, she was playing gangster's girlfriends again, but unlike in some of her other lesser films where she could read as blandly tough or common, as Coble put it, instead she looked provocatively beautiful and haunting. Von Sternberg had the skill and care it took to film Evelyn in that engaging way, but their 1928 films together coincided with tumultuous time for him professionally. Tensions on set were high, and though I don't think there was any specific conflict between the director and Evelyn, it doesn't appear that he held her in any notable regard. His muse, she was not. The success of their first venture, Underworld, did get her quite an epic change of pace, however, as Paramount put her in Beau Sabur. I can't pronounce it. I've tried. I'm Canadian. I took many years of French classes, but it's been no help, and neither has the internet. Anyway, Beau Sabur was this big colonial wet dream starring a very young Gary Cooper. Weet woo! It's a lost film, so we don't get to see Evelyn playing a spunky journalist. However, we can tell from stills that the director, John Waters, not that one, had other priorities than how Evelyn looked. It failed to garner her a wildly different new stage in her career. It did bring on a relationship with Gary Cooper, though. Apparently, she landed in between Clara Bow and Lupe Velez in his dating timeline, and his notoriously picky mother really liked her. It didn't last long, but Evelyn did marry three times and divorced twice. She also made the transition to sound relatively smoothly, but other problems were presenting themselves. Much as she enjoyed playing mostly bad girls, Evelyn would have been happy to play some other parts, too, as long as they weren't too... frilly? Girly? And apparently when forced to be in more fluffy roles, she complained. Not in a lock-herself-in-her-dressing-room sort of way, but she was extremely quick to tell everyone around her if she thought a role was ridiculous. She still took whatever came her way, but she was salty about it. No one ever went to bat for Brent, as it were. And Evelyn didn't really go to bat for herself, either. She drifted around aimlessly, reaching almost stardom, and then floated off as if she had no momentum of her own. 
Really, that is her career, which technically lasted until 1950, with increasingly teeny tiny roles feels thrustless. Evelyn saw her job as a job, not a calling, that's clear, and if she ever did hold ambition for a higher level of stardom, she had no sweet clue how to get there. The Wampus were very nearly right, but missed the mark. Virginia Brown Fair She became famous overnight. One year after winning the Fame and Fortune Contest, held by Motion Picture Magazine and the Motion Picture Classic, Virginia Brown Fair was being used to promote the next iteration of the contest. She was a nobody, now she's a star. And this, my friends, was well before she was ever noticed by the Wampus. Way back in 1919, the then 15-year-old Virginia entered the Fame and Fortune contest just as a dreamer. Sometimes the Wampus qualifications feel very arbitrary, but at least they claimed to care about talent. Not so the Fame and Fortune judges. This was a beauty contest 100% based entirely on photos, and the prize was frankly awesome. The two magazines will give two years guaranteed publicity to the winner. This will include cover portraits in colors, special interviews, pictures, special articles, etc. The sort of publicity that could not be purchased at any price. The Motion Picture Classic and the Motion Picture Magazine will secure an initial position for the winner and other opportunities if necessary. At the end of the two years, the Motion Picture Classic and the Motion Picture Magazine guarantee that the winner will be known throughout the civilized world. Though two years of mega publicity and even your first role handed to you on a platter, who wouldn't enter? And Virginia Brown, then dubbed Virginia Fair and then eventually Virginia Brown Fair just to keep everybody on their toes, she won, along with three others, all on the merits of their photos rather than any indication of talent. It is confusing that there were four winners. I don't know how well organized this thing was, as all the copy promoting the contest implies that there will only be one mega winner. <laughs> anyway, Virginia got this big boost at the beginning of her career, so it would be natural to think that perhaps she would be far too famous by 1923 to land on the Wampus list. After all, the prize she won back in 1919 insisted that she would be. But things don't always work so smoothly in Hollywood. The magazines made good on their promised prizes. Virginia appeared in both publications and graced the cover of Motion Picture Classic in June 1920. But things were quieter in year two, and while she had quickly signed with Universal, they mostly put her in shorts and supporting roles. In 1922, far from being known throughout the world, she only made two pictures. What was going on? Well, this teensy review from camera of one of her only 1922 films, Monte Cristo, might shed some light. Virginia Fair is a picture, and adds beauty to the production, if not acting. I mean, some of you might have called it when I said she got into the business based purely on a photograph. In 1923, just before being named a Wampus Baby star, Virginia moved over to First National. Her appearance on the list isn't coincidental. First National's publicity guys wanted to make returns on their investment. Their new narrative for Virginia was simple. 
Yes, she won a beauty contest. Yes, she is extremely pretty. But if you think that that is all that she has to offer, you're wrong. I realize I'm sounding facetious, but I do think it was a good strategy. And there's no reason to write off Virginia's talent based on her earlier work. By 1923, she was still a teenager, but she was gaining experience and confidence on the screen. This next stage of her career, well, never bringing big, big stardom, did allow her to appear opposite some of the biggest names of the era, including John Gilbert, Harry Carey, and popular Western star Hoot Gibson. She also appeared in 1924's Peter Pan as the iconic Tinkerbell. Nothing really allowed her to shake off the just-a-pretty-face reputation, and she didn't get any truly big opportunities over the next few years. By 1927, she was getting more publicity for her personal life than for her work. She was briefly married to cowboy star Jack Doherty, who had previously been briefly married to the very exciting and troubled star Barbara Lamar. Virginia and Jack's marriage was tumultuous, which seems to have been Jack's whole deal. Then she was widowed very young when her second husband, director Duke Warren, passed away unexpectedly in 1933. Back in 1927, Virginia got lumped in with some other floundering actors in a picture-play piece called Jinx, Jinx, Who's Got the Jinx? which I would love to taunt at someone soon. It reads in part, Virginia is, in the opinion of many, real star material. That she isn't a star is just one of those things, and a lack of suitable display of her talents. The Vogel Boatman's Princess seemed just made for Virginia, but another girl got the part, which is fate, or maybe a little private jinx that is holding her off for something better. Something better never came, but she sure worked, just not in great films, and increasingly in smaller and smaller roles. After a few minor sound films, predominantly B-Westerns, Virginia retired from Hollywood in 1935 with her third marriage, completing a slow fade of a career that never really took off the ground in the first place. No, the Wampus didn't get it right, and neither did the Fame and Fortune contest. But everybody tried. Maybe not their best, but they tried. Betty Francisco. What a name! Betty Francisco. Is she a movie star or a girl detective? Betty Francisco, I could say it all day. Of course, her real name was Elizabeth Barton, and she was born in 1900. She and her sister Evelyn formed a dancing duo, adopted their outstanding surname, and performed as the Dancing Franciscos on the vaudeville circuit as children. As a teenager, Betty joined the famed Siegfeld Follies, where she performed for two seasons before heading to Hollywood around 1920. She played in a few films and looked very pretty with a bunch of curly blonde hair, Really, it's hard to nail down why, in 1923, the Wampus were particularly interested in her. What I mean is, she wasn't so brand new as to be a novelty, nor had she been building momentum for years, about to land a breakout role. She wasn't a child star being debuted as a mature performer, or trying to break free of a previously established image. She wasn't even married to a Wampus. She was simply there, and after being placed on the Wampus Baby Stars list, 
Betty Francisco continued as before, with very little whoop-de-doo. It's almost remarkable, given that she worked consistently between 1920 until 1930, just how little publicity Betty got. She was even in films that, well, she wasn't the lead, should have boosted her profile. For example, 1923's Flaming Youth took Colleen Moore's career to the next level. But for supporting actor Betty Francisco, it barely made a blip, despite this being the same year when she was named as one to watch. And instead of being moved from supporting roles into meteor parts, Betty quickly got typecast as the other woman type, a secondary female part across a number of genres, but never in roles that would capture the audience's hearts or attention. Sadly for me, because I want to keep saying Betty Francisco, there just isn't very much out there about her. She married a non-Hollywood man in 1930 and made her retirement as quietly as she made her career. Oh, Betty Francisco, Betty Francisco, Betty Francisco. Would you have been a bigger star if you came up during the sound era and people heard your name aloud? Since it was 1923, the Wampas got this one wrong. Helen Lynch When the Wampas added Helen Lynch to their baby stars list, she very nearly was Helen Lynch no longer. Born around 1900, she made her debut back in 1918 and subsequently appeared in a number of comedy shorts over the next couple of years. Then, in 1922, having been discovered by Marshall Nealon, it was decided that her birth name of Helen Lynch was just no good. Stage names were commonly adopted in Hollywood, especially if the star makers disliked anything about the talent's original name. Quite famously, MGM insisted upon a new name for Lucille Lesseur because they thought it sounded like a sewer. Thus, Joan Crawford came to be. Neilan maybe thought Lynch had a less-than-pleasant connotation, or just didn't think it suited her, so arranged for a magazine contest to get his latest find a new name. The judges in the Marshall Neilan Helen Lynch naming contest running in the People's Home Journal report that over 200,000 names have been received, claimed the September 20th edition of Close Up. It went on to say that with three months left on the contest, which offered not only the chance to rename Helen, but also a $100 cash prize, that there might well be over 2 million submissions to consider. Trade publication The Motion Picture News, The Film Daily, The Motion Picture World, and The Exhibitor's Herald all reported on the contest, as did local newspapers across the country. As the September 16th edition of The Exhibitor's Trade Review so aptly put it, though, if magazines keep joining the ranks of publications that devote a page in every issue to inviting the readers to suggest a new screen name for Helen Lynch, there will be only one name for Helen Lynch if she wants to take advantage of a lot of publicity, and that will be Helen Lynch. By the time the Wampus list rolled around, the contest was quietly forgotten. However, as Helen Lynch or by any other name, stardom would prove elusive. She worked plenty, often being typecast in bad girl roles, gun moles and the like, or as a supporting love interest in westerns, but also in much smaller parts that didn't give her much to do, despite getting consistently positive reviews for her work. In 1928, Helen married fellow actor Carol Nye, who is best known today for playing Scarlett O'Hara's second husband in Gone with the Wind. 
the marriage brought Helen more publicity than her film career ever did. For example, there's a fun Screenland piece in March that year with the headline, She Married Him to Reform Him. It goes on to claim that Helen told Carol if he wanted to marry her, he would have to do two things. Get better roles and stay out of jail. I guess he did because they were together until her passing in 1965. Helen never did graduate to bigger or better parts for herself, and as sound took over, appeared only in a smattering of pictures. So the Wampus didn't get a win. I wonder if that would have been much different if she weren't Helen Lynch. Dearless Purdue Oh, how I've been dreading Dearless Purdue. I have that age-old reader's affliction, where I never know how to pronounce any name correctly, let alone one spelled D-E-R-E-L-Y-S. I may well be butchering it now. Of course, I wasn't the only one who had this problem. Unlike Helen Lynch, who abandoned the search for a stage name rather quietly, Dearless's fight was much more dramatic. And, frankly, odd. First things first. Dearless wasn't her birth name. She was dubbed Geraldine Perdue when she was born around 1902. How she landed on Dearless I could not uncover, but by the time she arrived in Hollywood around 1920-ish as a dancer, she was Dearless all the way. She quickly paired with Ramon Navarro, future sex symbol, and they became dance partners. It was as uncredited dancers that they both entered films, although he had a few more years of experience, if not recognition. They appeared in 1921's Man-Woman Marriage and A Small Town Idol together, though, of course, no one knew their names then. In November the following year, Dearless got her big break when A Dangerous Adventure was released. She had an important featured role, and rumors of a behind-the-scenes feud with the film's star, Grace Darmond. Dearless was newly under contract with FBO, when in late 1922, they announced a very similar contest to the one being held to rename Helen Lynch. Fans will name new FBO star, declared Motion Picture News that December. Through Film Fun Magazine, the contest offered a $50 prize, half of what was supposed to go to whoever renamed Helen Lynch, and had over 10,000 entries. By March, the new name was decided. Egg. I mean, Anne. Dearless hated it. Hated it. Anne Perdue was not who she was. And thus, the fight was on. The Wampus used Dearless in their Baby Stars announcement, yet had switched over to Anne Perdue by the time picture play included a photo of all the Wampus babies. She's referred to as Anne in all of Photoplay, Motion Picture Classics, and Screenland's June issues. She was getting mentioned so much because there was buzz around her. She was getting roles, though only one more film of hers, The Bishop of Ozarks, had yet been released. But on set, Dearless was insisting that no one call her Anne, and trying with little luck to convince the FBO executives to let her keep her chosen name. According to the July 7, 1923 edition of Camera, things came to a contentious head when Dearless sued FBO in order to keep her professional name her own. She claimed the name Anne would 
do damage to her screen prestige because of its plainness. It should come as no surprise that studios don't warm to litigious talent, especially when that talent is so unproven. Essentially, well, it's as Anne as the nose on Plain's face that Deerless is a more exciting name. Being proven wrong is few bosses' favorite thing. Having only been in film such a short time, Deerless barely had a reputation to take a hit, which actually makes her screen prestige claim rather bold. But whatever sliver of reputation she did have, it was quickly being picked away at. Not only was she difficult, refusing to go along with FBO's grand plan for her name, she also shows up in the fan magazines with snide remarks about her dogged pursuit of fame. Dear Liz, or is it Anne, Purdue is still wiring frantic details of her engagement to Craig Biddle Jr., begins a bit in Photoplay's August 1923 edition. Curiously enough, Deerless doesn't seem to realize that the rumored engagement has ceased to be news, and that nobody cares at all whether she is engaged to Craig. However, she's a girl of one idea, apparently, and the wires are apt to continue carrying messages from Hollywood to New York about her more or less private life. Count me in as obsessed with Deerless Purdue as the original wannabe celeb calling the paparazzi on themselves. Of course, this tidbit may or may not even be accurate, as it seems to serve the purpose of cutting Deerless down a size quite conveniently. If it is a true story, one can see why Deerless may have been feeling rather desperate to get her name out there. After being named a baby star and filled with such promise, she only made four films in 1924 and 25 combined. It's hard to see this as anything other than punishment for going against her studio, who not only emerged from the lawsuit victorious, but also quickly released her from her contract. Dearless continued acting, mostly in shorts, until 1929, when she finally left the screen with little fanfare. The Wampas, of course, were wrong about Dearless Purdue who faced the consequences of standing up for herself and her opinions in a time when few would have her back. I, for one, even if she ended up chasing clout, as the kids might say, I can't help but be proud of Deerless for being true to the self she created, no matter the costs. For she was no Anne. Jobina Ralston Jobina Ralston was born around 1899, named after her father, Job, in South Pittsburgh, Tennessee. That there's a plaque to her there might be a spoiler about her success as a star, but of course, we're not there yet. Before going to Hollywood in the early 1920s, she appeared on stage across the southern states as a child and teen performer. In 19, while in Jacksonville, Florida, she appeared in a series of cheaply made shorts dubbed the Cuckoo Comedies, which featured blackface performer Bobby Burns. Burns appears to have been largely and justifiably forgotten, and I mention this time in Jobina's life less to imply that she was excited to be working the dregs with a guy like that, and more to paint an accurate picture of the world from which she emerged. She also maybe appeared in a more historically relevant short film around this time, but we'll never know. 
Jobina is often referenced as the featured girl in the Marx Brothers' first film short, Humor Risk, but no one is actually sure that it was her. Humor Risk is not only considered to be lost, possibly destroyed by Groucho Marx himself in a fit of pique, it never even saw proper release. Almost every bit of information about the short is cloudy, but it may have been Jobina's first brush with real comedic talent. It wouldn't be her last. Eventually, she made her way to Broadway, where she was discovered by Max Linder in 1921 and quickly brought westward. The French Linder was one of the first international movie stars and was also a producer, director, comedian, and writer. A gifted physical comedian, he doesn't get much attention now compared to, say, Charlie Chaplin, but Linder was a slapstick pioneer. Unfortunately, after sustaining injuries and trauma in the First World War, his career was on the decline by the time he laid eyes on Jobina Ralston. Max put her in 1922's The Three Must Get Theirs, a burlesquean send-up of The Three Musketeers and the swashbuckling work of Douglas Fairbanks. The film was well-received, though it didn't do much for Max Linder, who was a deeply troubled man. It did get Jobina noticed by prolific comedy producer Hal Roach. Hal, if you're unfamiliar, produced some of the biggest acts in silent comedy, like Laurel and Hardy, Will Rogers, The Argan Kids, and Harold Lloyd. Still in 1922, he put Jobina in a series of shorts with a guy called Paul Parrott. I'd never heard of Paul before, but I don't think I'd care to. He had the creepiest mustache I've ever seen. Too long and too Hitlery. It seems entirely possible that Jobina would have had to stick it out with Paul Parrott's mustache well into the next year, maybe longer, and perhaps never would have caught the attention of the Wampus at all. But then, Harold Lloyd got married. Harold Lloyd cut an iconic figure. Known for his glasses character and hanging off a clock, truly he was one of the pioneers of silent comedy, and by the time he married Mildred Davis in 1923, he was a big deal. Mildred was the second of his contracted leading ladies. Baby Daniels was the first, and between 1915 and 1919, they appeared in a whole bunch of one and two reel shorts, like many dozens of them. Off screen, Bebe, who was only about 15 when they met, and Harold, who was around 22, became inseparable. When Bebe left the series to pursue a more dramatic feature film career, she also left her romance with Harold behind. She was replaced by Mildred Davis as Harold's leading lady in 1919, in more ways than one, as in 1923 Harold and Mildred married. Harold didn't want his wife to continue acting so he set out to replace her on screen and quickly spotted the beautiful Jobina. Screenland's April issue said, Speaking of new leading ladies, Harold Lloyd has a new one. She is Jobina Ralston. Never heard of her? We never did either, but we have it on Harold's word that Jobina is a peach and a pippin, and we take Harold's word for anything. A peach and a pippin she was. She signed a three-year contract with Lloyd, and they starred in six feature-length pictures together, including some of his best-known and received, Why Worry, 1923, Girl Shy, 1924, and The Freshman, 1925. There are those that believe the two had an affair, although it's very difficult to prove or disprove. 
he clearly did have a type, whoever was his leading lady at the time. Certainly, they did have outstanding chemistry together. Arguably better chemistry than he had with his wife. On screen, I mean. But you know, if you're feeling gossipy, read into that what you will. In 1924, a year post-Wampus and after her debut picture with Harold, Jobina was everywhere. Photoplay, motion picture magazine, Screenland. If you flipped through the pages of your favorite fan magazine, you were going to see Jobina's lovely face. And since the Harold Lloyd films were so popular, and she was so particularly charming in them, Jobina's rise to stardom was swift and sure. Her profile continued to grow and grow, and it made sense that Jobina wanted to explore other opportunities and more dramatic roles. There was Gigolo with Rod LaRock and a horse movie called Lightning, but none would change her life and career the way that Wings did. Released in 1927, Wings is the first ever film to win the Best Picture at the Academy Awards. A thrilling silent action romance, it stars Clara Bow, Charles Buddy Rogers, Richard Arlen, and in the fourth build role, Jobina Ralston. It also features another impossibly young Gary Cooper in one of his earliest credited roles, and, if I may again, Wheat Woo. Wings was big. It was a technical marvel and a box office smash. It also brought Richard Arlen into her life. They fell in love on set and married during a break in filming. Later that year, Jobina's last film with Harold Lloyd would be released, The Kid Brother. He never recaptured the magic with any subsequent leading ladies. And Jobina, while she was busy in 1928 with six films released, largely refocused her concerns to her husband's rising career by the following year. As Photoplay put it in a piece they called One Star is Enough in their April 1929 issue, there's a tale behind the career of Dick Arlen, a story of sacrifice on the part of Jobina Ralston. She retired from films to mother her husband's fame. Mothering a husband's fame? Ugh. She did actually continue to appear in two more films in the 1930s, but left for good before the birth of her son. There's something poignant about Jobina giving it all up for the sake of her husband. Yes, it was the de facto action of the time that a wife's career should come second if it came at all. It's a shame because she was popular with audiences and had real talent. But maybe for Jobina, after a decade of supporting various men on screen, Bobby Burns, Max Linder, Paul Parrott, and most impactfully Harold Lloyd, letting somebody else shine felt the most natural. This move also allowed her to bow out gracefully, her stardom intact. A stardom that the Wampus were spot on in predicting. Pauline Guerin. Born in 1898 or thereabouts in Quebec, Pauline Guerin ran away to Broadway in the late 19-teens before signing with the legendary and problematic director D.W. Griffith in late 1920. Since she was French-Canadian, the decision was quickly made to lie and say that she was actually from France. As a Canadian, of course I'm offended, but concede that if you're trying to create the image of a flirty, worldly young lady, France is the way to go. After being tested out in some minuscule and or uncredited roles and still performing on Broadway, Pauline got her film break when she appeared opposite Owen Moore in 1922's Reported Missing, which is now lost. 
Moore is best known today for being Mary Pickford's shitty first husband, but at the time he was a big star in his own right. Not as big as Pickford, of course, but still. A virtual unknown being cast opposite him got attention, and suddenly Pauline's career on the silver screen was off and running. I think, more than anyone from the Wampus Babies of 1923 list, Pauline's inclusion makes the very most logical sense. She had buzz, and the work to back it up, without just yet being a star. Easy to see why she was getting attention. She came across as very cheeky on screen with good comedic timing and a joyfully modern look. Pauline was undeniably a flapper, and she got to show off this new way of being a young lady in Cecil B. DeMille's Adam's Rib in 1923. It was another bump towards stardom. Enter the DeMille Blonde, declared Photoplay in their January 1923 edition. By this point, they were admitting she was a Canadian. Go us! And said the most surprising thing about her was despite her little round face, mop of golden curls, and a dimple or two, that she had a deep, husky, big voice. I heard her speak. Some of her sound films exist. I do not know what the fuck Photoplay was talking about. But anyway, they were trying to evoke something here. A gravitas, I think, to a performer who came across as a bright young thing. A silly, energetic, gorgeous, flippity gibbet. And while there may have been some attempt to assure audiences that there was a bit of substance behind all that style, soon Pauline and her whole publicity team, which by this point were the wampus of First National Pictures, though she moved studios frequently, were leaning hard into that flapper label and image, and everything that went with it, even its inherent sell-by date. I'm the flapper, Motion Picture Magazine quoted Pauline as saying in their 1924 edition. I am the flapper, and so my day is brief, for the flapper will surely pass with this her generation. I am like a bubble, very gay and bright, dancing for this moment on the crest of the wave, and as such I am happy. Tomorrow, but tomorrow may never come, and if it does, I shall have had today, which is all that concerns me. A beautiful summation of the mood of the mid-1920s although since it's very likely that journalist Gladys Hall wrote it herself, I don't feel bad about not putting on a French-Canadian accent in a big, deep, husky voice. Flappers sprung from a generation with nothing to lose because they had already lost everything. Their childhoods were marked by war, by trauma, and now with an economic situation briefly on their side, they rejected the shackles of their Edwardian parents and sought freedom in frivolity. The very nature of the bright young things was that they were indeed young and eager to burn as brightly and as quickly as possible. Everyone, including Pauline herself, knew that this was an unsustainable role to play, both in life and on screen. But unlike Colleen Moore, for example, who was an iconic flapper herself, Pauline didn't seem to mind or take much action to future-proof her career. She was a popular presence, if not a proper standalone star, for a time, though, for sure, especially with her generation and younger. By the second half of the 1920s, though, things were slowing down for Pauline. One factor definitely was the flapperism of it all. It is incredibly difficult to transition from a particularly zeitgeist sort of typecasting, and while the era of the wild young lady was ongoing, flappers had hit their cultural peak. Not only that, but now in her late twenties herself, 
Pauline was aging out of these sorts of roles. In 1926, Pauline married actor-director Lowell Sherman, and he seems to have not given her the best career advice. Throughout her career, Pauline worked for a variety of different studios, and she was offered a long-term contract with Paramount shortly after her marriage. Given that this was a critical time in which she could have established a more mature image, it does seem short-sighted to turn down a longer contract at a studio who could have offered her some much-needed continuity. But that's exactly what she did under Lowell's guidance. It's no coincidence that she made 12 pictures in 1925 and only two in 1926. She and old Lowell separated after a year and Pauline was back at her robust output, but not her level of success. By 1929, she appeared in an article in Picture Play called Honk Honk, Easy Come, Easy Go, discussing the ebb and flow of famous faces, the very tenuous nature of stardom itself. One by one, it seems, they drop from view, disappear. It reads, why are others, though still playing, submerged in a dim background? Pauline was one of those in the dim background. This is, of course, the very opposite of what she claimed she wanted just a few years ago. But what's the alternative? A girl's gotta eat, after all. Aside from a brief boost with the boom of sound pictures, wherein Pauline got to use her bilingualism to appear in the French versions of films, her career continued its steady fade for the next several years. Tiny, uncredited parts became the norm. So what's our wampus verdict? It's difficult to say. I would argue that for a particular generation, particularly those who were themselves part of that young, excited, slightly nihilist, but in a fun way, post-Great War era, Pauline Garon was one of their stars. However, she never reached the level of widespread fame some of her contemporaries did. And what she did achieve was short-lived. Her day was indeed brief. With a Hong Kong easy come, easy go, I'll leave you for now. There are more Wampus Babies of 1923 to come next week. I hope you'll join me. If you've enjoyed what you've heard so far, please rate, review, subscribe, and spread the word. I've been your host, Marg the old movie lady, an unholy mess of a girl. <laughs>